From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. It was a tough day in Jacksonville for the Gators, with Georgia claiming their third win in a row in the historic series and sending Dan Mullen and his staff back to the drawing board. But as football charts a new course with only three games remaining, the hotly anticipated basketball team is just getting started, with an opening night win under their belts and intentions of snapping a record losing streak against FSU. On today's show, We'll welcome FloridaGators.com senior writers Scott Carter and Chris Harry to discuss the disappointment of the Georgia game, the goals that remain within the Gators' grasp, the current gap between Florida and Georgia, a surprising departure on the offensive line, Kerry Blackshear's double-double debut, Sunday's Sunshine State showdown on the hardwood, and the history of head-scratching replay reviews in the PAT. Then, we'll kick it with sophomore Evan McPherson and discuss his transition from soccer to football developing a thick skin in the face of pressure, and how life differs for specialists on the gridiron. But first, in a game with so much at stake, Florida came out oddly flat in their loss to Georgia, one of many things that didn't go according to plan. So as we explored the path forward for the Gators, we began our chat with Scott and Chris by assessing where things went awry against the Bulldogs. Well, it felt that way certainly from the start. You know, that first drive set a tone. I think that it took Florida a long time to, as you mentioned, kind of find a rhythm. Uh, they finally got the offense cranked up in the fourth quarter, but unfortunately for the defense, they never got it cranked up when Georgia had third down. The, the Bulldogs converted 12 of 18 third down, including the one with uh, – what, a third and seven with still a couple minutes left, which Florida gets a stop there. They, they get the ball back with and a real chance to perhaps drive down the field and tie the game. Uh, but uh, Jake Fromm connected with Eli Wolf for a 22-yard gain. And that was all she wrote, Adam, for the Gators, as they say. Obviously a disappointing uh, performance. Uh, you know, I got to give Georgia some credit. I mean, to convert 12 third downs, Jake Fromm, I thought, made all the plays he had to. I don't think it was particularly a good game by Florida secondary on some of those plays. They just, you know, they didn't have their best. They were out of position on some. Obviously, the 52-yard touchdown pass to uh, Lawrence Cage or Sean Davis totally got turned around. That was a busted coverage, which ends up being a huge play uh, at the end. So, you know, it's, it's Florida. They have to regroup and uh, and watch that away and see if they can do what they did last year. Uh, you know, they, they lost to Georgia last year, then they – they came back and lost to Missouri before they got it turned around. This time, there's only three regular season games left, starting on Saturday with Vanderbilt, and they'll try to, uh, you know, finish it out with three wins. That give them a ten-win season and a pretty nice bowl trip. But the mood, obviously, uh, understandably, is uh, is one of an opportunity missed with what happened over in Jacksonville. You know, there, there was a lot of people wondering about Jake Fromm heading into that game because, you know, he hadn't been at his best the previous two weeks, including that loss, a three interception loss at home to South Carolina. But uh, 
and he looked like a first round draft pick in that game. And that's the, that's the way, you know, he was being talked about heading into this season. Like Scott said, he made all the throws. He was on point on all those third down plays. And some of them were third and shorts, but some of them were third and meaty distances. At, at, at times, it wasn't even close. No. I mean, there were guys, you know, wide open downfield. And of course, on that 52 yard touchdown that uh, uh, in the fourth quarter, that was really strange how that one transpired because Lawrence Cager came across from, I was in Spurrier's office earlier, so he was showing me the play. Came across from the slot on the right side. And so in essence, he's really running past the, the safety right in front of him from the opposite side of the field to go running free up, up the left third. So totally blown coverage at a very inopportune time, obviously. Florida was game, I think, and it's admirable that they put themselves in that kind of position. But, you know, it was appropriate and it was fitting that it came down to a third seven play. And Fromm is basically thrown off his back foot uh, across the field. The guy who's covered and one guy makes a play, the other guy doesn't. And um, that kind of summed up the day for Florida. I mean, uh, relative to how they played, the defense wasn't great, obviously, at LSU. And it wasn't great in this particular game. Uh, Scott didn't even mention this. And I'm sure it's a lot of people want to talk about this third down, but, you know, you put your offense in an awfully difficult position, or excuse me, your quarterback in an awfully difficult position when you rush the ball tw- uh, 19 times for 21 yards. That's a pretty one-dimensional uh, look. You're giving a, a very good Georgia defense. Um, I think that speaks to the situation with the offensive line. I think uh, you saw what Georgia's offensive line was able to do to protect from, to create some some running lanes and, uh, uh, you know, give them a chance to convert you know, big third downs and, you know, Florida's offensive line didn't afford Trask a lot of those opportunities. So a lot of the uh, narratives that maybe weren't around or maybe had dissipated uh, the week before about recruiting and uh, where Georgia stands versus Florida reared themselves again following this game. But I think Dan Mullen summed it up pretty well when he was asked after the game, what is the difference between these two programs right now? And his answer was seven points. And that's what it was that day. Um, in the bigger picture, there's probably some things that need to happen to for the Gators to draw closer with regard to the two programs. But uh, there's a baseline now from which to operate. But like Scott said, I mean, there's a lot to play for with this football team. They're seven and two. I remember in the 90s, the Steve Spurrier teams had some disappointing losses earlier early in the season, some of them late in the year to Florida State. And I mean, realistically, Florida could win 10 games in a regular season. Uh, beat Florida State for a second time in a row. Beat them at home for the first time in since when? 2009. 2009. Yeah, yeah. Play in a uh, play in a New Year's uh, bowl game, maybe against a team like Oregon or Penn State or something like that. Who knows what's going to happen? And maybe go 11 and two. And who would people would probably feel pretty good about the team if that's the case? Now that's the best case scenario. But all the all those things are still out there, and I think uh, I'm sure that's how Dan Mullen is is painting this picture. Plus. You know, Georgia still has some work to do relative to clinching your division. They hit, they have to beat Auburn or Texas A&M, one of those two, along with their win over. They have to beat Missouri. So they have to win two of their uh, their final three SEC games. So uh, that stuff's out of Florida's hands. But what's in Florida's hands is beating Vanderbilt, winning at Missouri, a team that's killed them two years in a row, and then finishing the season on a high note at Florida State. All, all that is within grasp. And if Florida can manage that stuff, they should, they're, they're going to feel really good about themselves. Uh when they exit into the Christmas holiday. Well, Chris, you sort of just led into something I was going to ask you guys about anyway, which is that key question that Dan Mullen was asked after the game is, 
how big is the difference between where Florida, where Georgia is? And Dan Mullen responded seven points and was, was really emphatic about that when I think people challenged him on it, suggesting the gap was wider. So I'm curious, Scott, for your take as well. You guys have seen a lot of football. Uh, where are the key areas Florida does need to improve to be in that situation where you can say confidently they are, quote, back and ready to beat a team like Georgia? Well, here's the way I look at it. Are they back? Well, you look at the rivalry with Georgia. Two years ago, they lost by 35. Last year, they were in the game in the second half and lost by 19. This year, if they could have had a defensive stop or started the game better, you know, it could have been tied. Uh, I think the gap certainly closed. There's no doubt about that. I think the perception may be it's wider than it really is. Since Georgia recruited at a much higher level than Florida the last three or four years, yes. But is that showing up on the field this past Saturday? I mean, maybe at times, like we talked about, I mean, Jake Fromm played a great game, I thought. I thought Georgia's offensive line, if you're going to stack up the programs, their offensive line is deeper, stronger. But I, I think sometimes we get kind of caught up in the recruiting rankings and uh, all that stuff. But I mean, the fact is Georgia has won three in a row in this series. Uh, but I think if you took this Georgia team and this Florida team, and they played for the next four or five weeks, I, I would fully expect Florida to win a couple of those games. That's just where we are, but that's not the way it is. Uh, Georgia went out and they, they earned it, so they're clearly the, still the class of the SEC. But I, I just go back, and I've written this several times. I go back to really February of 2018. Dan Mullen had just gotten up Florida. Georgia had just destroyed the Gators 42-7 a couple months earlier. Georgia signs the number one recruiting class in the country. Some people called it the greatest recruiting class in the history of college football. And then Georgia, since then, that was coming off a year when they played for the national title and lost to Alabama. Since then, they haven't played for the national title. And when you look at the way last season unfolded, at the end of the year, when it was all said and done, in the final AP poll of the 2018 season, Florida was ranked number seven. Georgia was ranked number seven. So, you know, it, it's a it's great to debate. It's great for talk radio. It's great for internet message boards. But it's very well possible that in two months, after all this shakes out, Florida could be back ahead of Georgia in the polls if they do what they need to do. So I think the programs are pretty close right now. I don't think Gator fans are nearly as downtrodden as they were in comparison to Georgia a couple of years ago because back then it was wide, but I credit Dan Mullen and his staff for where they've closed that gap and with what they've done on Saturdays with their coaching acumen. Uh, but until they beat Georgia, Georgia's got the advantage. I mean, that's the only gap I look at, really, Adam. Uh, Georgia's won three in a row. So, yes, there's still a gap there. But is it this overwhelming Georgia's in another league than Florida at this stage? I don't think so. And speaking about that gap, I think the offensive line is where maybe the, the most fingers were pointed and you can just see the differences there. Georgia's got a massive offensive line. Florida's still trying to build that depth. Uh, and that depth took a little bit of a hit this week with the announcement that Chris Bleich was going to be leaving the program, entered the transfer portal, which is, I guess, de facto free agency now in the world of college football when you see a pop-up on ESPN. Uh, but, Scott, curious what this does to Florida's depth on the line. I know that Bleich had sort of fallen out in terms of the starting lineup, but still, you know, that's an area Florida does not have a ton of depth, and losing anybody at this point is certainly not good news. Yeah, I know it's not, Adam. I mean, that, that was somewhat surprising, especially this time in the season. You don't usually see a player enter the transfer portal. And, 
Hey, yo, one thing about Christopher Blythe, she'll always be kind of tied in because going back to when Dan Mullen did take over the program officially, he was hired in November 17. And, and then Christopher Blythe was the first player to commit to the new staff. He'd, he was uh, committed to UCLA and he had been committed to Penn State, but he eventually committed to Florida, signed with the Gators, was redshirted last season. Had moved into the starting lineup at right guard this season. Had started eight of nine games, but had lost his spot to Richard Garrod uh, in the Georgia game. And uh, it's a case where Dan Mullen, that was one of the first things he was asked this week on his SEC media teleconference appearance. And he had tr- he said that there were some things going on with Blythe's family back in Pennsylvania that he thinks factored into this decision. He, get, he didn't go into specifics. So, again, I mean, getting to your original point, yeah, it's a blow because this is not a, a deep Florida offensive line. And while Blige was maybe losing some ground in the starting lineup, he was still a valuable piece of depth. So uh, with three games to go in the regular season, you, in a, an offensive line that really runs only about six, seven deep, it's going to be a blow for the program in terms of immediate depth. I think they'll, they'll work Ethan White in the true freshman, get him in the mix, and just hope that they don't have any injuries and uh, that they can make do with what they have. That is one area that there's no doubt. When you look at the Florida-Georgia rivalry where these two programs stand, that's probably the biggest divide. But I think Georgia has that advantage on about any program in the country right now. Uh, But Florida is going to have to beef up in the offensive line. I know that's a primary concern on the recruiting trail. And when you lose a guy like Christopher Blight, so you – you know, he still had three more years of eligibility after this season. He was certainly part of the plans. Uh, it's a disappointing blow for Dan Mullen and his staff. With Vandy coming up this weekend and, you know, noon game as well, the letdown from uh, from Florida, Georgia, there's obviously a lot of reasons why Florida might not play well. And, and especially if you make the parallel to last season, the way they let Georgia beat them twice, uh, in the words of Dan Mullen, after they fell flat against Missouri, uh, I'm curious for you guys, what have you guys seen from the team this week that, that suggests that they're going to respond differently than maybe they did last year to a similar adversity? When you hang around coaches as much as I do, Adam, I mean, I, I don't think the coaches are sitting there uh, talking about or thinking about, oh, well, it's a noon game. We don't play well at noon games. That kind of thing. Dan Mullen is a person who tries to keep things right in front of his team. You know, it's another opportunity. Uh, they're playing at home. Yes, uh, what transpired last week wasn't optimum, obviously. They didn't play well. They have a chance to go out and play well in front of their home crowd again. Um, I, just, I just did a five-minute soliloquy on this. There's still, there's still a lot to play for. But, I mean, if you, if you like you said, or like uh, 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 Josh said, or like Dan Mullen said last year, you let one loss become two losses. I mean, you know, you're taking yourself out of all these great possibilities down the line. So, uh, uh, you know, Vanderbilt – is a team that beat Missouri a couple of weeks ago. Uh, Vanderbilt will be confident coming in here, even though they've won one game here in what the last 50 years or something like that. I think he might even be more than that. Might even be close to 60 years. Somewhere Somewhere like that. Something like that. Yeah. Um, I mean, Derek Mason is a good coach. Uh, they're certainly capable of coming in here. If Florida doesn't have the right mindset and makes a bunch of mistakes, turns the ball over, doesn't take advantage of opportunities in the red zone, all those things you need to do to win the game, but it's a home football game. How many more home games do these seniors have? The answer is two. And if you can't get up for one of your last two home games uh, of a season, 
then again, you probably don't deserve to be in the position that uh, that you want to be in. So I am a trend guy in a lot of ways. I am an intangible guy in a lot of ways. But uh, I'm a believer also that Dan Mullen is someone who takes um, teaching moments and reference points and is able to uh, hammer them home to his players uh, behind the scenes. I expect Florida to play well this weekend. Yeah, I kind of go along those lines. I will say, just from what I saw at Mondays for a brief open window of practice, uh, just happened to stop by. It was pretty intense, and it seemed like they were out there uh, a little bit longer than normal. I know the media had to wait around a little bit after Monday night's practice. And Dan Mullen uh, said on his conference call that it has been intense. But they're also, I kind of agree with Chris, I think Mullen showed what he can do with a team that, you know, last year I thought it was such a critical point for the, his time here when they lost those back-to-back games and, and to able to kind of, I guess, recapture their attention to, to finish off with a four-game win streak, including wins over Florida State and, and then Michigan in the bowl game. I mean, that's that can be a tricky spot for a coach, especially a coach who's in his first year and all those players that he was dealing with, uh, he didn't recruit most of those guys. Uh, so I think he has some uh, a lot of experience to fall back on, some real uh, recent history, obviously, last year. The best thing that can happen for the Gators on Saturday is to come out, uh, get a quick start, take care of Vanderbilt the way they should. I mean, this is a, a Vanderbilt team that ranks last in the SEC in total offense and total defense. Uh, so the Gators obviously uh, have an advantage on paper. They're at home for the first time in five weeks. They are going to be down a couple of key players on defense. I think, uh, you know, Jeremiah Moon's out with foot injury. Amari Bernie is very doubtful. So you mentioned Christopher Blythe. So there, there's some things lingering over that aren't ideal, Adam. But, again, I think talent-wise, I think with what you guys have talked about, with what they have left to play for, I mean, if you don't come out there and with kind of a nasty taste in your mouth and wanting to take care of business, it's probably not a good sign for you. So I, I expect them to bounce back and then go out to Missouri and try to do it again because, uh, as we've said, they've got a lot to play for. I want to talk now about a team that certainly has a ton to play for because their season just got started on Tuesday night. That is the Gator men's basketball team. And, Chris, I know that there was a lot of hype about a lot of things. And before we talk about the overall performance, uh, why don't you touch on uh, what we saw from Kerry Blackshear because that's obviously been the, the hype train rolling throughout the offseason. And while Florida overall may not have had a great night, he certainly was very impressive. Anyone who's been around Kerry Blackshear uh, since the time he's been here, um, that game came as no surprise. Uh, this is a guy who was a all Atlantic Coast Conference player. He's played a, more than 100 career games up in one arguably the best league in the in the nation, the best league in the nation, obviously. You know, he's a 15-point, seven-and-a-half rebound guy. Last year, he gets a double-double in his first game. His um, demeanor on the court, um, I think he's a calming influence out there with uh, with his teammates. Um, maybe it didn't show so much because I think some of these young guys were a little anxious, rightfully so, to being their first game. I mean, you're talking about a team with played 10 guys, uh, um, and six of them were either Kerry Blackshear or five freshmen. And uh, Blackshear was great. 32 minutes, uh, 20 points, 10 rebounds. I mean, he had three assists. He's a tremendous pass. He had a couple steals. Tremendous passer, really unselfish player. Uh, I think he's the best big man here since uh, since Al Horford. And mm. um, he has that ability to be a threat at all three levels. And we haven't even uh, discussed what he does defensively in terms of communication. So played as advertised. I, don't, I didn't expect anything less from him. Um, the team wasn't great 
in beating uh, uh, North Florida uh, by 15, 74 to 59. Um, they got up to a 24-point lead. Mike White said they kind of relaxed maybe four or five minutes into the second half that showed up. Uh, North Florida scored more points than Florida did in the second half, shot the ball a little bit better. But again, I, I, I attribute some of that to, you know, five freshmen uh, rolling out. I mean, uh, I thought Jason Jatobo, a big 6'11", 290-pound guy, he played he played seven minutes. Quez Glover played almost 12 minutes. Uh, I don't know if that's going to be what the rotation is as the season plays out. Um, Keontae Johnson got in foul trouble, only played three minutes in the first half, so maybe he never found a rhythm per se. Andrew Nemhard only hit one of seven shots, but he had four assists and no turnovers um, in almost 32 minutes. I think one freshman who really flashed, uh, obviously, uh, Trey Mann is a very smooth and gifted scorer. Uh, Omar Payne came off the bench and uh, showed his incredible length and what he can do uh, uh, in terms of rebounding. Scotty Lewis, athleticism in his 23 minutes. He had a really quiet, took a double uh, take on his, um, his line was nine points, five rebounds couple assists, didn't turn the ball over, had a block. He, he was pretty damn good off the bench. And, and, and that shouldn't be as any surprise because the guy was a top 10 prospect. But all this did was this was the first time for them to play together in a real regular season game. And obviously there's a lot to work from, a lot to work on, and they don't have a whole lot of time between now and their next game to really get a lot better because they're going to have to play a lot better if they're going to win their next game. Well, that next game is against Florida State, and, and while I don't know that anybody around Florida State is talking about their basketball program right now, thanks to some crazy upheaval on the football side, uh, they have had Florida's number now for a record-setting streak, and we talked a little bit about it last week, Chris, but now that we've actually seen Florida debut, we have a little bit of a better idea of what their rotations might look like. How do you expect that matchup with Florida State to play out? Yeah, and the Florida State, their teams don't change much year to year. And Scott covered them when Leonard Hamilton was there, and they're always gigantic. Uh, they're always very athletic. They're maybe not very fast. Uh, some of his teams recently, Leonard Hamilton's teams recently, have been a little more on the tempo side. But uh, uh, they lost a lot of players from the team. The la- their last two teams last year went to the Sweet 16. The year before went to the Elite Eight and I believe had Michigan within a, a possession inside a minute to go to the Final Four. It's a good basketball team, and uh, uh, they have a point guard, a battle-tested guy in Trent Forrest who really took it to Andrew Nemhard in Andrew Nemhard's first college game last year up there. I mean, we, you talk about the winning streak. FSU's won five straight, and the, the results have been what they are. I mean, my goodness, um, Jake Kurtz knocked a, a, an own goal. Oh. Billy Diamonds last year with less than a second left to give FSU a, a one point win five years ago. Uh, FSU came here the following year, Mike White's first season. Dwayne Bacon hit a shot with four seconds left on a night that uh, Kayvon Allen had 32 points. And I think it was just like his eighth or ninth game as a as a college basketball player, as a freshman. Um, third time, the third straight win, uh, Jonathan Isaac, the uh, lottery pick of the Orlando Magic. He was the star player for that FSU team. Um then uh, the following year, Florida was number five in the country and just walking around with their chest poked out at an average of 100 game, points a game, having come back from Portland and nearly beating um, number one Duke out there in the uh, in that big tournament out in Portland. I was all PK, in after that. Yeah, yeah. PK-80, where, uh, that's the game where, I, where Scott had to take my place. I was out of town um, up in New York for a Steve Spurrier function, and Scott predicted the Gators would only lose three games that season. Florida, <laughs> 
FSU came in and absolutely punked that team by, and really that season provided a blueprint on how to defend that spread offense that Florida was running wide open. They just got up on and got up in their shorts and really, really, uh, uh, like I said, provided a blueprint on how to defend. I think the next game, two nights later, was a Loyola Chicago game where they came in here and won that final four team. And of course, last year, season opener, you know, just a, a, a disaster. Uh, went to Tallahassee and lost by 21 points. Um, really started the season off on a on a really sour note. This this is a series that's been going on since 1951. I know the fans are really frustrated. Um, you know, people talk about how Billy Donovan never never lost to Florida State. Well, he lost to Florida State a few times uh, actually, but he didn't lose to him five times in a row. Nobody has. And I think from a fan standpoint, this is a very very big game. It's at home. I'm expecting a sellout. Uh, it's a one o'clock game. So fans that came to the football game uh, may stay over and try to come to it. So this is one of those uh, barometer games where we'll know a little bit more about this basketball team. There'll be a lot to focus on uh, coming off this win over North Florida. But uh, Kerry Blackshear has played FSU before. He knows what to expect. So I imagine they'll lean on his wisdom a little bit to know how to play this team. Andrew Nemhar knows what to expect from Trent Forrest. Um, Noah Locke wasn't very good last year against Florida State. Keontae Johnson didn't play very much against Florida State. Those guys are a, a lot more uh, in tune with what to expect from um, a game of this magnitude. And uh, I imagine it'll be a, a pretty hotly contested affair. And the Rowdy Reptiles, I imagine, will migrate over from the football game and pitch their tents and uh, be very prime when they tip this one off at 1 o'clock on Sunday. Moving on to our PAT for this week, I want to talk about uh, blown calls, especially in the era of replay. And, and we didn't talk about this earlier with our discussion of Florida-Georgia, but you know, there's no question one of the, the biggest plays in that game, and, and arguably a turning point, was the third down pass to Cager that appeared incomplete, was called complete on the field, it was reviewed. Uh, I can tell you being in the stands that pretty much everybody, including the Georgia fans, thought when the replay popped up 100% that was an incomplete pass and then somehow replay managed to uphold it uh, and then kind of a, a wonky explanation about Birmingham making that decision so in any case it, it wasn't a great moment for the Gators in that game it seemed to really you know turn the tide against him in a lot of ways but it got me thinking about in the age of replay how many calls still seemingly are wrong so for you guys I wanted to see what stands out to you in terms of play games you've covered events you've been at where there was even a replay done that was incorrect after all was was said and done i was 100 percent certain that they were going to overturn that so when they kept it i was shocked i mean the nose of the football looked like it touched the grass it, I, don't, it, I don't think there was even it wasn't even a debate really uh so i mean that one stands out for me um i guess to me what i would say is that uh if we're still going to have these issues with replay replay needs to either get better or just go back to the old way <laughs> <laughs> yeah the evolution of what has become a reception and what isn't i mean it's it's not the same i was a wide receiver in high school it's not the same i mean but back then you, you either caught a pass or you didn't and i think you knew where you did i mean i i go back to the calvin johnson play yeah. uh the des bryant play uh birdie manual uh for the bucks in the uh oh, in yeah. the nfc championship game i mean no those are all ones that kind of jump out of you, and all of them had replay at the time to make a decision. And I don't know whether it's whether it's right or wrong, but the definition of what is a reception has changed. 
So um, that's just one thing. Whether you, you know you talk about roughing the passer as being uh, hitting a guy low, or this whole the looking at replays and you can't determine if a if a, a guy used his uh, helmet for targeting. Um, it seems like the, uh, the the subjectivity of it all is really it's brought it in more when I thought the goal of it all was to kind of take it out. So I don't know if this is answering your question or not. I'm sure there's some um, in basketball or you know, hockey, um, something that, that, that has been more pronounced. But I mean, now that they're actually reviewing pass interference in the National Football League, I just, you know, I, I would, would have never have thought I, I would live to see that day. And maybe that's one of the reasons I've watched less, less NFL this season, because there's so much of that um, really kind of poisoning the game a little bit. Not that I don't love watching it, not that I won't be uh, glued to it during the playoffs and what have you, but it seems just the game has really evolved in a way that I, I never thought it would have. Even on Monday Night Football there when I was watching and, and the Giants challenged a pass interference call, and during the review they made the point of saying that so far this year only 15% of pass interference challenges have been successful. So, And you got to imagine that in a good percentage of those, the coaches are pretty confident they're right, and yet the calls just don't match what everybody else sees. So it's hard, especially in a game like football. There's just so much subjectivity that you know your interpretation of a rule might differ from someone else, and you get these calls that, that are just hard to explain. Yeah, that's right. I mean, just imagine if they started replaying or uh, reviewing holding calls. Sure. Okay. Well, I mean, why wouldn't you if you're going to review past the field? No, I mean, I, you, you could. Yeah. You could. And just imagine, I mean, I guess a game at that point would take about, what, 12 hours? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, no, I, there's things that I really like about replay, and there's things that just drive me nuts. I think I'm probably with most people there. I mean, I would love to go see, like, famous, like, is the immaculate reception, is that still a catch on replay? I don't know. I don't think they ever had a definitive thing of you can never really tell the ball touch, yeah. but but it looks like a catch. Okay, like okay. A catch. So I mean, there's all these things in history that you could apply it to and see where they would stand, how that would change history, and then of course we see it each week. I mean, there's inevitably at least once a game there's something that pops up that I feel I'm pretty certain about just as an observer watching the replay in the press box or at home on TV, and they call it another way. And I'm like, okay, maybe, maybe I need glasses. <laughs> maybe it's a you problem, right? <laughs> it could be, maybe it's just me. Well, in any case, it's a very busy week for you guys. We'll need replay just to remember everything that you did this weekend because you both will be covering Florida and Vanderbilt in the swamp on Saturday. And then Chris will have coverage of Florida and Florida state trying to break that streak in basketball on Sunday. So I encourage everyone to check them out at Gators, Scott at Gators, Chris on Twitter and, of course, at FloridaGators.com. Guys, thank you so much. Thanks, Adam. See you, Adam. Few roles in sports provide the roller coaster of highs and lows that come with being a kicker, where you can be lauded as a hero mere moments before being blasted as the GOAT. Considering he's only missed three kicks in his short Gator career, Evan McPherson has enjoyed a stellar reception in Gainesville, but it wasn't always a smooth road to get there. We spoke to the sophomore about how he came to be a kicker and the challenges along the way, but began by finding out the vibe in the locker room following last week's setback. Yeah, I think the mood has actually been pretty good for the circumstances that happened, you know. Everybody really wanted to go to Atlanta and play for the SEC championship game, and 
it's still on the table, but it's just not in our hands anymore. So we just got to keep playing ball and uh, hope Georgia loses. One of the things that, you know, was big last year was after that Georgia game, then the Missouri game came up and, and Coach Mullen said afterwards that he felt in a lot of ways like you let the Georgia game beat you twice. Um, this time around, how has that been different? What, what steps have been taken to make sure that that kind of lingering effect doesn't happen in a similar scenario? I think just making sure that everybody uh, just keeps their head up, really, because, you know, against Georgia, we played probably the worst game we have all year and we still lost by seven. So just seeing that, you know, we can beat those elite teams and knowing that, you know, we didn't play our best. And so we want to go out and play our best next week. I think that's what's keeping us going. I want to come back to more uh, current team stuff in a little bit. But right now, I want to take a little step back in time for you. Um, can you tell us a little bit about where your family's from, what your parents did for a living and, and what life was like growing up for you? So my parents were from uh, Fort Payne, Alabama. Well, my dad was. Um, he was born and raised there. My mom, she was born in Alaska. Wow. Yep. Her parents adopted her when she was a little baby. So they brought her back to um, Birmingham, Alabama, and then they soon moved to Fort Payne. So that's where she kind of grew up. Have you had any uh, any trips to Alaska? Any, any time going up there and exploring her background at all? No, I've always been curious about that, but... Um, you know, we just never really have tried to kind of explore that. As far as the rest of your family, brothers, sisters, any siblings? And, and what was that dynamic like? I have two brothers, um, one older, one younger. And just growing up, you know, we always like to be outside playing sports. If it was like soccer, basketball, maybe football. But pretty much growing up, we'd always play soccer outside. And um, I'd say that's where I really got the love for like kicking a ball, you know. I love soccer. I played it all my life. And um, my brother kind of taught me everything I knew about kicking. So give all the credit to him. Yeah, that's what I'm always curious to know as far as most kickers, it seems like have a a soccer background and then they sort of migrate over. Um, when did football get into the equation for you? Football probably started for me. Well, not really like playing for a team. I'd say kicking a football would be around like fifth grade. Because my brother started when he was a uh, freshman in high school. So I'd say about fifth grade is whenever I started really kicking a ball. But I, I joined my first team in junior high, so seventh grade. What were the biggest differences, you know, when you started switching over, making that transition? Were you still all in on soccer or did you more and more start to think that being a football kicker was going to be a better path for you? I guess whenever I started kicking, you know, I kind of saw – a future in that because Logan like kind of found out that he could go to college for it. And so I thought that was pretty cool, you know? So I thought, you know, maybe that's something I would like to do, but I still played soccer, you know, it's the sport I grew up loving. So stayed with it and it really helped me stay in shape, kept, kept my legs strong. But I'd say I started um, not taking soccer so serious and took football more serious about like seventh, eighth grade whenever I started playing varsity. How is the, the team dynamic different among a football team relative to the, the soccer teams you played on growing up? Is there a big difference there? Well, for me, uh, there was because my soccer team that I played on, we grew up since we were like five years old playing together. And, you know, we'd play like travel soccer together. They'd spend the night at my house almost every night. Uh, we'd hang out every day, go to soccer practice 30 minutes away from where we lived. And um, we just played all the way through high school. So I'd say... You know, the soccer team, I had more like of a bond with those guys. And I call those guys my best friends because, you know, I just grew up with them. And I love them like my brothers. I'm not sure if this is something that, that you have like a mental note of in your head. But I would imagine that there's probably a, a first kick 
that you made or when you made your first field goal and something that would kind of stand out? Is that something that, uh, that you think about and, and what would that be? Yeah, funny story. So um, it was my eighth grade year. My brother graduated and got off to college. And so the, the uh, football team, they didn't have a kicker. So they brought me up as an eighth grader to play for varsity. And um, so I run out there, team scores, I run out there for my first PAT and I miss it. <laughs> and I remember I, I ran off the field crying because I was so upset about it. And, you know, all my coaches like, oh, it's okay. You know, you'll get the next one or whatever. So the next one comes. I made the next one. And then the third one, I go out there and I miss it again. Hmm. And so, you know, after that, I was just like eighth grade me. I was on this varsity team, you know, Friday night. I was just, I was crying probably the whole game. <laughs> I was so upset. I remember that. That's probably a funny memory for me. So how did you bounce back from that? I mean, that's, I guess early on you have to develop that mentality if you're going to be a successful kicker. So how did you sort of form that thick skin that, that you have to have? Yeah, I mean, I think it's just it develops over the years. You know, um, you make kicks in big moments and you miss them. Um, so you really just got to learn how to deal with it. And I feel like over the years, you know, I don't really take anything personal. Um really what anybody says about me. So if the opposing crowd is yelling at me while I'm kicking a field goal, you know, I really don't hear them. You know, I'm just locked in the operation, you know, snap, hold, kick. So, I mean, I don't know. I've developed this trait where I kind of just block everything out. Mm-hmm. So when you started getting some offers and looking at where you wanted to go after high school, which schools were you most interested in and what made Florida stand out? When I was going on my, all my visits, you know, I'd say like my biggest schools at the time whenever I was like sophomore or something, it's like Auburn, Alabama, you know, everybody from Alabama probably wants to go to one of those schools. But, um, you know, Auburn, they just gotten Daniel Carlson's little brother, Anders. And so I kind of knew that was um, not going to happen. So Alabama, I mean, I thought there was a chance for them. And then they offer a kid in the class before me too. So that was off the table. And then, I took um, a visit to Mississippi State, and um, really what brought me in there was just like the coaching staff. You know, they had a really good uh, special teams quality control guy. His name was um, Coach Bonyol, and um, he played in the NFL before, five years for the Cowboys, and like he's been there through college in the NFL. He's played in a Super Bowl, and so I really saw that he would be able to develop me into a better kicker and you know, I trusted him a lot and I really like Coach Mullen and his staff. So, you know, I kind of had my mind set on going there. It was just, I was just waiting for them to uh, offer me. And then when, when they left and they came to Florida, was it instant for you that you were going to follow them or did it take a little bit more to find out what Florida had to offer outside of just the, the coaches? Yeah, I would say at, like at the beginning, I was kind of, I was still all in with Mississippi State and, um, after Coach Mullen got to Gainesville, he kind of called me up and told me that I had an offer to Florida and that he really wanted me down here. And whenever he told me that, you know, I kind of had to open back up and had to kind of weigh my options again, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, truthfully, I wanted to play for, you know, those championship games and big games. And I thought um, Coach Mullen was doing a great job at Mississippi State, like developing a really good team for the future. And so whenever he left for Florida, I just saw, like, bigger and better opportunities honestly for bigger games like that so if I went to Mississippi State you know I didn't really know anybody you know I didn't know any coaches so I wouldn't really have that relationship like I had here Hmm. well and when you came in in addition to the pressure that's just always going to be there as a kicker you also are replacing Eddie Pinheiro who became something of a a folk hero in Gainesville 
So how did those expectations weigh on you as you came in knowing, you know, high expectations you had to hold up? Well, I mean, whenever I came in, you know, Coach Mullen told me that the competition was open. You know, me and George Powell were going to have to battle for it. So um, coming in, I know nothing was going to be handed to me. So, I mean, I had to come, you know, ready to work, be consistent, powerful, and just knowing, like, I wanted the pressure of kicking on Saturdays, you know, and I wanted to, um, you know, kind of come here and maybe break the records that Eddie set or any other kicker has set here. That was kind of my mindset coming in that I just wanted to pretty much compete with not just the kickers that were here, but like the past ones too. Mm-hmm. You know, specialists often get ignored and, and shortchanged by fans and media in football. What can you tell us about the, the life of a specialist in major college football? I'd say it's different. You know, uh, people are in hour and a half meetings and we have maybe 30 minute meetings and we have a lot of downtime, you know. We go to practice about 45 to an hour earlier than everybody. We warm up and we have our one period in the beginning and then we're pretty much done. You know, we hang out, we observe the team and uh, we kind of see what the mood is and how everybody's feeling about this week. You know, we kind of just sit back and watch. You know, we can't kick all day because <laughs> our legs would get a little tired right. and fatigued. So uh, I'd say it's different. It's more a uh, quality over quantity Mm -hmm. for us so like we want to kick uh more quality balls than kick 100 balls a day so when we're getting our work in we make sure that it's good so we don't have to spend too much time kicking extra balls what's the routine like because i'm thinking i'm just comparing it to when i go to the driving range right and i'll take out a nine iron i'll get that set then i'll start moving up slowly i mean is that sort of how you work do you start with extra points and then move back to 30 40 etc i mean how, how many balls are you kicking what's that like yeah, for me, I start with what what we call no-step kicks. No-step kicks is you just put your plant foot beside the ball, and you kind of just bring your right foot back and then kick the ball. You don't take any steps, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of just for ball contact, ball-to-foot contact. And then I do that from about the PAT range, but I aim at the, the right upright. So just to make sure that I'm hitting it solid and straight. And then I back up to about 30 yards. Um, and I do my one steps and one steps are pretty much like your progression to getting the full steps, I guess. So it's, it's what it sounds like. You take one step and kick the ball. I do that from 30 yards and then I do like at least two warm up full steps. I don't go through my whole routine. I just kind of rush it back and then do like a smooth kick. And then I'll go and do like, I'd say like a chart that I have in my head. Well, I go like left hash 27, right hash 33, left hash 37. And then right hash 42 and then left hash 47 and then like right hash 52. And that might go like 55 middle to see, you know, how the legs feel. Is there a set number you take? Like, do you every practice you're going to hit X number of balls or is it sort of depend on, on how that goes? I would say that there isn't really a set number. I would say it depends on how I'm hitting it. So if I'm not hitting it like I'm supposed to or that I like that I am, you know, I'm going to take a few extra balls and kind of work it out but if I'm hitting it good I mean I don't want to like keep kicking and you know fatigue my legs so I kind of just shut it down because I know I'm hitting it solid so Mm -hmm. we see more and more uh, kickers posting videos on social media of crazy practice kicks and I mean I think one time Eddie Pinero posted like a 72 yarder or something uh what's the what's the longest kick that you've made either in practice or just goofing off yeah I mean we have a we have a bet with well, EQ guys that if me or Chris Howard hits like a 75 yard field goal, they'll give us like one piece of equipment, you know? So that's, 
we're really aiming for that. We're waiting for the right day, the right wind. But I will say um, I had a 75 one day. I just missed a little left. Mm. What's the longest one you've got documented on video or at least have witnesses that, that can confirm? 70. 70. Indoors, outdoors, what are the conditions? Outdoors, I'd say with a little wind. Okay. Yeah, for sure. That sounds good. It was in high school though. Yeah, one of the things we always see is uh, icing the kicker is such a, a popular tactic among coaches. It's been going on forever. Um, I always wonder what's going through your head when that happens. Are you anticipating it? How do you prepare knowing that that's a possibility? And then if it does happen, how does it affect you? No, honestly, I've I've never really been iced. So I, I couldn't tell you how I, how I feel in the moment, but how I think I'd feel. I talked to um, Jacob Tillman and Tommy. If we're ever in that situation and we think that the coach is going to call a timeout. Like if you hear the whistle blown, then like he's going to go ahead and snap it and I'll go ahead and kick it like it was the regular kick, you know? So you kind of get that practice kick. Like that's what I would do in that situation. I guess I'm sure I would have an idea of like how many timeouts they would have, but I wouldn't really let it affect my uh, preparation and what I do, you know? Mm -hmm. Uh, Kickers are known to have such a strong community, both past and present guys that lean on each other for support. I'm curious which kickers, either past or present, have had an impact on you that you've been able to, to interact with. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'd say Will Lutz has definitely had a big impact on me. You know, I've been to several camps with him, you know, just watching him kick and talking to him about, you know, different stuff. He's really helped me a lot. You know, I'm, he's a, a guy that I watch film on and try to mimic him and just see what he does because he's probably one of the most He's one of the most accurate kickers. Say so he's helped me a lot, and um, his teammate Thomas Moore said he's a great guy to talk to. You know, he he doesn't mind talking to all the younger guys um, at camps and just in general. So I'd say those two I have like more of a connection to. Outside of football, what do you enjoy doing when you have some free time? I'm a big golfer, so that's why you you appreciated my driving range example. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I just think that a lot of kicking kind of correlates into uh golf it's got a lot of hips involved and it's all about technique it's kind of the same pressure too you know you're like kickers not the only one out there but I don't know, you kind of are but you kind of aren't because you have this whole line and snapper and holder mm-hmm. but it kind of all eyes are on you and so like i see like a bunch of similarities in kicking and golf so i think that's why i enjoy it so much who's your foursome when you go out to play i'd say with the um with the specialist i don't I'd play with um, Tommy, Jacob Tillman, and um, Chris Howard plays. I really haven't played with him. But, um, you know, with me, I really like going out and, like, playing by myself. Hmm. I kind of see it as kind of therapy, you know? Like, it's like every Sunday after the game on Saturday, I normally go out around 4 4 p.m. You know, I just go out by myself and hit a couple balls, have fun. I see it as really relaxing. Except when you start hitting bad shots, not as relaxing, right? Start, yeah. start breaking clubs. <laughs> yeah. You talked earlier about growing up in Alabama and you know everyone there, you're either on the Auburn side or on the Alabama side. Uh, did you choose a side in the Iron Bowl? Yeah, during the Iron Bowl, I normally go for um, Alabama just because I thought we had the most annoying Auburn fans where I live. <laughs> and so I'd always root for Alabama just so I could have those bragging rights to them after Alabama beat Auburn. Um, this is a fun one for you. I'm curious to see what direction you take this. If you had to listen to one song on repeat for an entire day, what song would you choose? Ah, uh, that'd be a country song. Okay. 
Okay. I'm about to look at my um, playlist right here. I got a good play. <laughs> Checking the most played songs in your playlist? Honestly, I really like Big Big Plans by Chase Lane. It's a good one. Okay. Or I like uh, To a T by Ryan Hurd. It's a great song. Huh. Well, I'm not a country guy, so I'll have to take your word for it on both of those. I definitely listen to that country song on repeat. <laughs> Going back to the, the Alabama thing for a second, when you're growing up and there's there's no pro teams in town, really the only game is it's Auburn, Alabama. Um, did you have favorite teams you followed outside of where you grew up and, and what athletes did, did you look up to? Like a guy I look up to a lot, which I've, I've never talked to him before, but it's Justin Tucker. Hmm. But he's my favorite kicker. And I got a little Baltimore Ravens shirt with a Tucker on the back and a nine. Very nice. And I feel like if I would ever change numbers here at UF, that would be number nine or a little single-digit number, you know. How did you choose your number? Uh, it's the best option, honestly. <laughs> and it was Johnny Townsend's 19, Caleb Sturgis is 19. Another guy that I like to watch was Roberto Aguayo. He was mm. 19. So um, just seeing all those guys kind of wear that number, I thought, why not? carry on the tradition for number 19 yeah well evan thank you so much for your time we really appreciate it and we wish you a lot of luck the rest of the year yeah thank you and that's going to do it for this week's show if you haven't already done so be sure to subscribe to gator tales in the podcast app of your choice and please leave a review to help us continue to grow it's a crucial weekend on campus with football taking on Vandy at noon on Saturday and basketball battling the Seminoles at one on Sunday with both games airing on ESPN and the Gator Sports Network from Learfield IMG College. We'll be back next Thursday with an all new episode, so don't miss it. Until then, I'm Adam Schick and I'll see you in Gainesville.